0: Uh, well, hey, for for the message, we're uh, focusing on a passage from the letter of Philippians today. We're in the midst of an eight-week series in Philippians. This is the second of those. It actually fits quite well with the theme of uh, of the week for VBS. You are treasured. We'll be looking at the second half of Philippians one, and we've been working working our way through this letter, just keeping in mind the unique relationship that exists between Paul and this church to whom he was writing. It, it was a warm relationship. They were friends, and this letter is a warm and friendly letter. It's filled with a theme of joy. And um, really, it reveals that more than just being friends, they, they, they kind of felt like spiritual family. They were really close. And Paul wrote to them much like a spiritual father would, just uh, a friend and father coaching them, uh, uh, directing them. So it really is a, a great letter. Last week, we read about how Paul referred to the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So they had been partners in this thing. And that word in the original language really refers to a fellowship around the message of Jesus, friends in the message of Jesus. And that's what the Philippians and Paul were. Uh, we looked at that last week and it, it, that partner word is really less business partner and really more like spiritual family. So in this passage uh, of today, we see some of Paul's reflections on his own experiences and how that might be meaningful to the Philippians. So before we read the scripture, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. As we turn to it now, we pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit on us and open us up, help us understand what you're saying. We believe by by the inner witness of your spirit that the Bible is a book like no other, that you inspired it, that you speak through it. So God, help us hear you today as we listen. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: The word of the Lord from Philippians 1, verse 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters had become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodness and goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. For I know that through your prayers and through God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as and always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I am to go on living in the body, this would mean fruitful labor for me. And yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that by my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks, Sandy. So is there something in your life somewhere, you know the rub, if you were to take a quick mental inventory of your life, uh, this would be that place of greatest fear or uncertainty. Um, I don't just mean uncertainty like, COVID time uncertainty. You know, everything was up in the air then and we all learned, I think, to live with a lot more uncertainty. I mean, I mean the kind of recurring theme. You know, the thing that kind of keeps cycling around. And, and uh, when, you, when you feel it, when you encounter it, it, it kind of feels like a pit in your stomach. You feel the tension coming on. You know it's not frustration, it's fear. I mean, what... What has caused or is causing that kind of tension in your life? What's the thing in your life you wish you could control but cannot? But you really wish you could. But you know it's 100% outside of your control. I mean, we, we all have these places. We, we all know we show up on, on Sunday mornings to church, kind of dressed up, <laughs> T-shirt today, right? Everybody's looking Good. And we know that we're not all good. Everybody has stuff going on. And uh, I, I don't know what kind of season you're in right now. I know I've experienced seasons where that, that inner dialogue is, is kind of on the quiet side. It's kind of a, a dull whisper down here. Other times, it's, it's a roar. It's like the voices are screaming at you in, in your head. You know, so I don't, maybe, maybe you're in a season where uh, the fear and uncertainty, those voices are, are kind of silent or only speaking softly. Maybe you're at, at, a, at a place where you feel like those are screaming at you and just top of mind. Those voices are very real. And um, uh, th- this is another message, but the Bible, the Bible really explains where those things come from. I mean, you, you know as well as I do that we all have an inner dialogue that happens inside. And I'm talking about more than just the thoughts that we think I think you, I mean, we're all human, right? So you've experienced it just like me. There's something different from the inner dialogue uh, from our just daily thinking. You, you know when a voice appears. I'm not talking like one you hear, just voice in your mind, you know. And, and you know as well as I do that when those voices are having that dialogue inside of you, they're saying very different things. I'm sure you've experienced this. One voice will say this thing and another voice will say something so completely opposite that it is impossible for both of those statements to be true. And then you're left in a quandary. Which of those things is real? Which of those things is true? And, and the Bible speaks pretty clearly about where those voices come from. There's four options, biblically speaking. The world, the flesh, the devil, or the Lord. And, and our job is to discern who's speaking when. Especially... In times of uncertainty and fear, because all of the typical questions, all the big questions, come right to the screen of our minds. Right? Like, what's really going on here? What's happening? What's real and what's not? What's true and what's a lie? What am I supposed to do with my life in the midst of all this? Because it kind of stinks right now. In the passage we read, Paul gave the Philippians an incredible gift. And it was because of the closeness of their friendship that he kind of lets his guard down. And he lets them, and gladly allows us too, to have a look inside his inner dialogue. And that's just a total gift to the church. You know? Paul, Paul shares that the uncertainty and fear came from the situation in which he found himself. And the certainty and faith came from what he believed about God and the world because of his relationship with God, because of knowing that he is treasured by God. Now, Paul wrote this letter most likely to the Philippians when he was in jail in Rome. And there's a backstory there that I'll explain in just a second. But since they were good friends, uh, the Philippians, of course, were concerned about Paul. He had planted their church. He was their spiritual leader and they had heard that he's in jail in Rome so this letter was quite welcomed from him. They wanted to hear from him. But beyond that, Paul knew that they would also need help sorting through what it meant that their leader was in jail. You know, why would God let this happen? And what does it mean for us? They they had to be wondering, you know, like if preaching the gospel gets you thrown in jail, what does this mean for us? So Paul writes these lines to them, the first verse we read today. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And a couple times through here, he, Paul refers to what has happened to me. So let's just, let's just review that really quickly. Uh, If you want to read the full story, it makes up the last eight chapters of the book of Acts. It starts at Acts 21, 27, and it runs through the end of the book. What happened to Paul in this season of his life? It all began with a prompting that he felt to go to Jerusalem. He felt like God was saying, Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem. Here's here's that prompting. He described it, uh, or how he described it in Acts 20. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. That's what Paul said. And Paul followed that prompting, went to Jerusalem. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he was seized by a mob that wanted to kill him, arrested for no reason, and interrogated by the Jewish ruling council. Forty Jewish men made an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until Paul was dead. So Paul was transferred to another city for his own protection, and his case handed up to the governor. Because the governor owed the Jews a favor, he kept Paul in prison for two years, intentionally not hearing his case. He rotated out of office. The next governor came in. That governor was of the mind to send Paul's case back down to the court in Jerusalem. So Paul appealed to Caesar, which was the right of any Roman citizen. He was put on a ship to Italy, to Rome. The ship ran aground, was destroyed. Uh, Paul and some others swam for their lives, made it to an island where Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake, but it didn't hurt him. Three months later, they found another ship, hopped the ride finally to Rome, where Paul was then imprisoned again for two years under house arrest, waiting for his time before Caesar. So all told, what had happened to him was like a five-year period where he was falsely imprisoned and and on on trumped-up charges You know, it it was a horrible, uncertain, fearful time in his life. And yet, he can summarize all that with this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. A five-year period of time. I mean, I don't know about you, I'm thinking if that was me, it would be really easy to be really mad, feeling like five years of my life had just been stolen from me time of tremendous uncertainty. Paul was in danger. He was not in control of his own life. The only thing standing in uh, 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 the, the path between him and death was a system of corrupt officials who could at any moment either kill him or kick his case back down to the lower court where he surely would be killed. I mean, Paul was not in control at all. Uncertain. Nothing sure in that scenario. This was his place of fear and uncertainty. But... In the furnace of that uncertainty and fear, was forged a certainty of faith—a kind of Jesus perspective on times of struggle, the very real difficult times in our life. That that faith enables Paul to say, "What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, or in the original language, remove barriers to the gospel so it can move forward." That's what the word "advance" meant. Paul was able to see how his false imprisonment, his struggle, even his suffering, had removed barriers to the forward movement of the message of Jesus, and he saw how God was using that. Didn't make it right, didn't make it just, but God was using it. So Paul writes this, as a result, it has become clear throughout the palace garden and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So first, what happened to Paul advanced the gospel because Paul's story went viral. Word got out. You know, it was way before social media, so not viral in that way. But but people began to hear that this guy was in jail not because of something he did, but because of something he believed. And that captured people's attention. And specifically, the something he believed was, quote, this is from Acts describing the story about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. That was the thing. And it became evident to everybody in the palace that Paul was in jail because he believed that he lived in a world where a resurrection has happened. Not kinda, not maybe, not we hope so. You know, Jesus appeared to Paul, spoke to him. Paul didn't just hope this, he knew it. Everybody knew And second, what happened to Paul advanced the gospel because Paul's example encouraged the church in Rome. His his fellow Christ followers in in that town watched him, heard of him as he was spending those two years in prison. And they were emboldened because of it. Something about Paul's story helped them trust Jesus. It stoked the fires of their faith. and, And their fear was replaced by courage. Because of Paul's story, they were changed. Refocused on what's really central and important in life. Refocus not only on the message that's worth dying for, but on that message of the gospel that's worth living for, moment by moment, day by day. Yeah. And this, this happens, and I, and I would venture to bet if you, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and, and you've been attempting to follow Jesus for at least some time, maybe a year or two, uh, probably, maybe even less than that if, if you're a newer Christian, you have probably observed the faith of another person and you've probably experienced that faith almost rubbing off on you because it really does that. The faith of other people encourages us. It it changes us. It's kind of like sometimes God gives people a gift of faith so much that they're they're almost kind of believing on behalf of other people or, or their faith is impacting us, encouraging us and our faith grows because of it. This this is what happened in Paul's situation. Everybody became aware that he was in jail because he was claiming that Jesus was alive from the dead. And the testimony of his faith encouraged not only the church in Rome, but the church around the world. And then in the second half of the passage, Paul reveals his his sense of certainty. And this is where he starts to unpack some of his internal dialogue. Look at what he writes there. Yes, and, and I will continue to rejoice... For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, literally my salvation. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In everything that happened to him over the last five years, Paul can say, all of that will turn out for my good, my deliverance, my salvation. In, in his letter to Romans, Paul wrote this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Even the things in life that really stink. I'm not saying that God causes all those things to happen, like pre-planned on purpose, just that God can make good out of what other people intend for bad the great teaching of Genesis chapter 50. Now, Paul didn't just write those words. He believed them. He he applied them to his life in real time as the horrible situations were, were unfolding. He was able to say and believe that all that had happened to him would turn out for his salvation. That was Paul's certainty. Paul knew that God was at work in his place of greatest uncertainty and fear. Paul did not know if he'd make it out of this situation alive. But he was able to say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, this, this is an example of Paul's faith defining his situation rather than his situation defining his faith, from which we should learn. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where that has been flip-flopped where the the situations of a person's life have begun to define their faith rather than their faith defining the situations in which they find themselves. Now, I'm not saying, if you're in a place where a situation is impacting your faith, I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong. All I'm saying is that in Jesus, there is a, a kind of prevailing faith that is available to us that is greater than our circumstances, that is larger than our current situations, a kind of faith that is not rocked or, or shaken by the events of life, but which instead helps us define and, and categorize and place the situations of life. That kind of faith is available to people. And, and, and this, this all leads Paul to probably the most self-revealing part of this passage where he really now is revealing to us the mental ping-pong match happening in his mind. You can almost feel the inner dialogue. One voice saying this, another voice saying this. Look what he writes. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Yet what shall I choose? The mental ping pong match, right? Paul's lived for so long in this tension between death and life. He has worked out all the implications, It's not that I really get to choose between life and death, but you know, those are the two possible outcomes for me in my current situation, and I gotta tell you, if it was up to me, I know it's not, but if it was, and I had to pick, I'd be hard-pressed. I mean, we can see here the perspective on death available to followers of Jesus. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? Right, death is simply a departure for followers of Jesus, says the Bible. An end to something we all know is temporary. It's going to end. Not maybe. And, says the Bible, that end involves Jesus coming back to take us to be with him where he is. Jesus said that himself in John 14. At that point, all the uncertainties and dangers will be gone and all things will be made new. Right? At that the point, all will be certain and safe and sure in Christ forever. And as Paul very you know, rationally determines, that is, quote, better by far. Not just a little bit better. That's way better. So this is part of Paul's focus. He has left death and, and life in perspective. To Paul, living means becoming more and more like Jesus. Death become means gaining Christ. You know, all things made new, better by far. As one commentator uh, writes, in, le- in life, Paul is absorbed and determined in consecrated living for Christ. In death, he expects to possess Christ totally. It's a win-win, And though Paul would desire departure, another part of his focus kind of trumps that desire. He wrote, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul worked out the implications of life and death. Paul knew that death in Jesus was a great gain, but in the end, the orientation of Paul's entire life won out. It is more necessary for you. I'll choose what's better for you over what's better for me, because I love you. That's like the simple ethical implication of the gospel in a line, right? And we don't do it under our own power. Jesus helps us do this. The Holy Spirit helps us live like Jesus in that way. See, the life of following Jesus is a life centered on others. Basic mandate for God's people in the world. Uh, Blessed to be a blessing. Seek the Lord, bless the world. Paul saw his life's purpose to include these two things, to grow in Christ and to bless the world. His churches still needed his help, his guidance, his love. Thus he was willing to postpone heaven so he could continue to bless just a little bit longer. Now amidst even questions of life and death, Paul's faith enabled him to keep the big picture In mind, and and the Romans, the Roman church saw that and was encouraged by it. And like the believers in Rome, Paul's story can encourage our faith as well. And it should, I think. Fear can be replaced by faith and courage because we know God's up to something good in our lives and, and in the world. And like Paul, we can experience faith and courage in situations that normally might be dictated by fear. You know, because of faith in Jesus, or because faith in Jesus has shaped our view of the world rather than the world shaping our faith in Jesus. It's a huge thing. You know, C.S. Lewis had a quote one time that I thought was just brilliant. He, He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. One of the most powerful arguments For the truth of the Christian faith is that it explains what's going on in our lives more accurately, better, than any other spiritual belief out there. I mean, the inner dialogue bit. What other other faith explains that? Everything else says it's just your self-talk. Everything else says that those voices in your head, are you getting it wrong? not that they're simply coming from outside sources. And and we could go on and on on this, right? Paul saw his situation through the eyes of faith and thus he was able to see his situation for what it really was. See, there's a a kind of prevailing faith that's available to us in Jesus. I've said this to our, our congregation before and if you're a guest, I wanna make sure you hear this too. You know, from the Bible's perspective, the antidote to fear is not strength or courage. The antidote to fear is, church? Love. Yeah, love. Per- perfect love. Comes, comes right from 1 John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. The, the antidote, the, the answer the cure to fear is not trying to be stronger or more courageous or uh, you know, standing up to all, all that opposes you. The, the answer to fear is to turn again to God's love for people because that's the only perfect love. It's what this verse is about. God's perfect love drives out fear. And here we are right back to this again, Right? We're treasured. God knows you, hears you, comforts you, forgives you, chooses you. God loves you. No one's love is perfect but God's. And in Jesus, there's a kind of prevailing faith available to us. It's only through a relationship with God in Jesus that our fears are driven out by God's love for us. Fear to faith. God loves you. Wherever you are right now, God wants you back. And all you have to do, really, is stop saying no. And simply say yes to the yes God has already spoken to you in Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, would you pour out your spirit on us and help us turn to you? Help us say yes to you. Uh, show us each and every one what our next step forward with you is to be. And God, help us in that. We, we know fully that we, we don't create our faith. We, you, you started it, you began it, you complete it. We know all of that, God. Help us in our part with you. And help us uh, to stop saying no to you, to to stop turning away from you. Help us to turn toward you. Uh, We love you, God. Thank you for sending Jesus and enabling us to know you. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.